Eve sermon event. Um, if you've been to Resonate, uh, you know that we usually take Christmas Eve off just because we live in a very um, transient community, one that a lot of people aren't necessarily from. So uh, around the holidays, we get days like this where uh, a lot of us go home, which could be just a couple miles away to our families, or it could be uh, hundreds or thousands of miles away um, to a different coast or to a different state or even to a different country. So uh, we like to take this time to encourage people to go be with their family, hang out. Um, so wherever you are right now, whether you're in a plane or in a car or around a dinner table, I, I hope you're not listening to this around a dinner table. If you're any of those places, Merry Christmas. Um, I'm so glad that I can be with you. Um, I just want to give a brief explanation of what this Christmas season is all about. And specifically, we've been going through uh, a series called Context. We've been looking through weird, weird stories in the Bible and kind of giving them dignity and shining light on them. Basically what that means is we'll, we'll pull out one of the stranger stories that is kind of hard to explain and we'll give it its historical context, we'll give it its poetic context, we'll give it its timing, and we'll give it its cultural context. And with that, what we found is we actually can learn a lot from even the strangest stuff in the Bible. And today, Christmas Eve, I would like to submit to you that this Christmas Eve story, which there is a Christmas Eve story and there is a Christmas story, and what we often don't get is that most of the story actually hangs on this Christmas Eve element, this night before, uh, this, this day before, this journey before this child arrives. This is the bulk of the two chapters that we get in both Matthew and Luke. We're looking at uh, what happens to the family of Jesus, the surrounding characters, what happens before this baby is born. Because once the baby is born, it's kind of like, boom, now we're into the gospel. We've just shot forward a couple years to when he kind of escapes into the temple, and then way forward, 30 years later, we're at a mm-hmm. wedding, and he's making a lot of wine. So, Christmas Eve is something to pay attention to in a lot of ways. And what I want to get at is that as we've been pulling out these weird stories, and this will actually culminate the entire series here, we're done with the context series after this, we're going to be moving uh, on to resolutions, because New Year, uh, when we get back on the 31st, What I want to do is say that this might be the strangest story we have in the Bible. The two stories we celebrate the most, which are Easter and Christmas. And you know this because these are the two biggest days that you would go to church, right? These are the days you would dress up, all that kind of stuff. These are the strangest stories we have, and these are the ones that we lead with. So we really have to give some context to this. Otherwise, we're inviting people into something that they're going to get weirded out from right from the beginning. So to do that, I would love to pray before we get started. Um, If you're driving, please don't close your eyes, (laughs) but we'll pray together, uh, and then I'll jump into what it means uh, to celebrate Christmas Eve and the tension that we're sitting in today, right now. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, uh, I'm thankful for technology. I'm thankful for the ability uh, to be out into the world, and we can still experience uh, community together. We can experience your word. And so as we look at what it means uh, to sit in the beautiful tension of Christmas Eve, I pray uh, that you'd be with us. I pray that you would enlighten us. I pray that we would learn something. And then most of all, Lord, let us just uh, savor just this time wherever we're at. Uh, Christmas can be a very warm, fuzzy, awesome, beautiful time. It can also be a hard, difficult time. Uh, And so we hold both of those. We recognize as a community that we're able to hold both, and that we're able to support each other in both. 
Amen. So, Christmas Eve. Uh, we all know Christmas Eve because likely most of us go to a, a church service of some kind or there's a tradition of um, maybe uh, having dinner together as a family or maybe you're one of those strange families that got to open up presents that I was very jealous of as I was a kid uh, where you get to open up presents on Christmas Eve. Maybe one of those. Anyway, Christmas Eve holds its own sort of tradition. And we think of it in the family aspect, and we think of it as a holiday to be celebrated, uh, but the beginning of this story is actually crazy different. Uh, Christmas Eve, the day before, would have entailed a couple characters. So we have uh, Herod, who is the king of the region in which Jesus is born into, and then we have the parents of Jesus. Their names are Mary and Joseph. And then we have the shepherds, and I did a whole thing last year on the shepherds, if you want to listen to that, and I'll touch on them just a little bit, but I mainly want to focus on uh, Joseph and Mary, um, and also I did a thing on Herod a couple weeks ago, which is also on the podcast, that you can listen to that. Um, but I want to focus on Joseph and Mary, I want to focus specifically on this day and what this day would have meant to them. You have to remember that historically, if Joseph and Mary were betrothed to be married, and they were going to to go through with that, they would have been between the ages of 13 and 16. And likely, the guy would have been about three years older. So Joseph could be anywhere from 16 to 19 years old. But then you have Mary, who likely would have been 13 or 16 years old. And what happened in those days is Rome was ruler over all uh, of this, this, this vast empire. And Jerusalem happened to be a part of that empire. The Israel nation happened to be a part of that empire. And so what they would do is they would take over a certain space, a certain kingdom, and then they would elect their own king to be there. And that's where this King Herod comes into the picture. And they would tell that king, hey, you have direct dominion over all of this, but here's how you're going to rule. You're going to tax people, and you're going to tax them according to your will, but you must give some of that tax over to us. And this is your number. So they would have to send that number, but then Rome would not send money back to build these mini kingdoms inside the kingdoms. The kings had to raise their own money within that while still giving to Rome. So this resulted in double taxation, which, you know, taxes are a really hot button right now in the news. This is disruptive, awful taxation that would leave people almost to the point of poverty. And if that wasn't good enough, Herod, this guy, uh, was a very, very influential, they called him Herod the Great, and basically he was very famous for building very large, large structures. He built a swimming pool in the desert, which I didn't know that in the ancient Near East you needed something like that, but he built this massive swimming pool in the desert, he built this huge palace, he built a mountain, that's right, a mountain, he won a battle on a small hill, and looked around and said, this hill is not large enough for the grandiose vision of my winning this battle, so you guys have to build a mountain here. So literally builds a mountain with a stadium inside it. He's building all this stuff. So how does he pay for all this stuff? He taxes the people above what Rome is already taxing them. So, double taxation. But what's worse with Herod is that there's this idea of triple taxation, which if you're already taxing your people into oblivion, in fact, the historian Josephus says that Herod no new no sorry knew no bounds there's a tongue twister for you knew no bounds in terms of how much to tax his people it says he was literally bleeding them to death bleeding them to death 
Herod does the double taxation, and on top of that, he decides to build one more really big, large structure, and that's called the temple. And that was a huge religious move at the time, because basically what he said to the Jewish people was that he was now in charge of building the temple, which was an enormous religious responsibility held only by those that were entrusted by God before that. And that was Solomon, and that was David. And so what Herod is saying in this moment is, hey, God, this God that you worship and you think is on your side, actually, I'm on God's side. God is on my side. And everything that I do, as oppressive as it seems to you, is God-ordained. Because I'm building this temple, and now I am closest to God. It's crazy stuff. So, like I said, on top of the double portion, now with this temple deal, they have to pay a portion of their income to the temple as well. So you have Rome, you have Herod, and you have the temple. You have three things that basically left this Jewish people in a state of extreme poverty. They would basically be taxed up to about 80% of their income left with 20%. This is crazy, right? So, this is how this Roman Empire worked. This is how it ticked. This is how it moves along. And this is the reason it was so successful. It was because it was constantly just bleeding the income out of the people that it would conquer to support its military efforts, and it was just ever expanding. So you have a Jewish people, and now you have Joseph, and you have Mary. And you have a 19-year-old, and a 16-year-old, or a 16-year-old, and a 13-year-old who have to now make a journey because there's a census. What a census would be is that once Rome absolutely just demolished you, <laughs> they would need to count you to figure out how much tax should be coming back to them. And it didn't matter where you were living because the only way to count you would be through birth records where you were born or through where your family was from. And so no matter where you were in this kingdom, whenever a census would happen, and it would happen whenever the heck they wanted to call one, you would have to travel from wherever you were, even if you lived in this foreign land, you would have to travel back to where your family was from to be counted. For some of you listening right now, that sounds an awful lot like your Christmas vacation. Anyway, you would have to go from the place that you lived back to the place where your family resided. And for Mary and Joseph, who were living in Nazareth, this meant they would have to go from Nazareth to where Joseph's family was from in Bethlehem, and that was 97 miles. Now, that's a lot of history. Don't lose me on this. We're going to get to something really, really incredible here. That's 97 miles. This is before cars, obviously. This is before a lot of things. There may be with some livestock involved, but we have people who are just starting out here, so likely they're walking this. And to make matters worse, Mary is pregnant, 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 ready to have her child. It could come at any moment. So you have to imagine as they hear word or open up that letter that this census is happening and they see this, their hearts just must have sunk. They must have gone, oh no, this is the worst time. Mary was like, no, I'm about to have this child. There is no way we can make a 97-mile journey to Bethlehem. But this is the way the Roman Empire worked, and so they were forced to do that. They were forced to, no matter what, they would have to go. And so they embark on this 97-mile journey. So now, as we place ourselves on the day we're at, Christmas Eve, the day before this child is born, you have to realize that they would have been coming to the tail end of walking almost 100 
miles. Pregnant and teenagers. Only to arrive in the city of Bethlehem where there was no room for them because this census would have caused people from all over this kingdom to have to come back home where nobody actually lived and it would cause all the inns to fill up, every available space to fill up. And on top of that, Mary is a liability for any innkeeper because she's about to have this child. And she's about to have this child out of wedlock, which is a double whammy, which would have put them on the outside everywhere they would have gone. And see, guys, when we tell this story, we tell the story in a way that it's like, it's almost sweet, right? Like we have the nativity scene and we have, they're in a manger and the, the hay just looks so soft and you <laughs> place the baby in there and it's like, it's like a mattress. That's not, that's not the way that it worked. You have two new parents where there is no room for them because the crowds are too big and too great. And when we think about this story, we always kind of think that, oh, maybe they just went to like one inn and we're like, oh, nuts, I guess we'll stay in the barn. You know from any bad trip that you have ever taken, any bad vacation, any bad experience, that if there is not room one place, what do you do? You go to the next place. In our age, you would hop on your phone. You would find an available space, right? Especially if Mary is about to have a child, you have to imagine them rushing to every single available space they could possibly find and being turned away everywhere because it was either simply too crowded or maybe even a little more dark because the people did not want them, one, an unwed couple who's expecting a baby in their inn, and two, the fact that she's going to have a baby is going to be a real problem for the innkeeper, so no. So what are they then forced to do? And this is really important. This is the tension that we sit in right now. They are forced to pull a last resort move and find any shelter possible to get in there because Mary is going to have this baby. And that results in them actually finding this barn, this place where animals would have been fed that was likely empty, abandoned, something like that, but they're able to find their way in. And what I would like to submit to you guys is this is much the same as any sort of family that may be experiencing homelessness might have to do at some point where they have to find and scavenge for a place where they can just lay their head. And this is where Mary has this child. This is a last resort for them. And here's what I want to get at with all of that history and all of that story and all of that craziness is that The beauty of the Christmas story is that God may use what you believe to be a last resort to show you who you are, and more importantly, to maybe show you a little bit more of who God is. This is the space that God chooses to enter into the world through this Christ child, this Jesus the Christ. And it's on purpose, and it's not an accident. The inn was too crowded, And God looks at this barn, and instead of going completely crazy and smiting every innkeeper that turns them away, what he does is he throws a party. He announces to these shepherds in the fields through this massive display of angels singing songs called a jubilation, and they sing, and that's basically God pointing back to that barn and saying, like, I'm not ashamed 
that my son is born here. I am proud. And that, guys, is crazy, crazy stuff. I am not ashamed. I'm proud. See, what we get through the story of Christmas Eve is something that we should be paying attention to all year long. Richard Rohr puts it like this. In the Christmas story, we see uh, God all vulnerable and God almighty. In the Christmas Eve story, this is all about this God all vulnerable. And we focus on God almighty so much, but it's only 50% of who God is. There's both this great, awesome God that can do everything, and then there's this other flip side where we worship this guy named Jesus who was born into vulnerability and on the outside. And that's a pretty pretty crazy picture when we think about the way that we gather together as followers of this Jesus person and how we celebrate him and how we worship him. Pete Rollins is this uh, Irish philosopher um, that I follow a lot. I just, I love uh, everything he does. He's, he's, a, he's a brilliant guy. Um, and he has this amazing story uh, that he uses to describe sort of uh, what religion or faith should really look like as opposed to what it kind of looks like now. And he says, um, think of a, a nightclub where you walk into the nightclub, uh, if you're lucky enough, <laughs> and the music is blaring and uh, there's lights, there's lasers going all around, and, um, and you can't really see anyone, and the music is way too loud to even really talk to anyone, and so you just enter into the masses and into the crowd, and you just kind of move your body, and, and you bob up and down, and if someone were just to go back behind and find the light board and slap on all the lights and turn off all the music, people may just start to cry. <laughs> right? We're left with each other, and we have to look at each other, and suddenly the things that we use to numb and ignore and still be around us, are now taken away. And he juxtaposes that, because he's an Irishman, with this picture of an Irish pub, where he says, okay, look at, look at the club, and then now look at the Irish pub, where there's a singer-songwriter in the corner who's uh, literally just pouring out his soul and the people in the room, and he's playing at a level that's quiet enough that people uh, can talk to one another and actually converse And the drinks aren't meant to numb us, they're just meant to be there to enhance the experience, and we're all there, we're all able to laugh, we're all able to cry, we're all able to share. And he says, that is what faith should look like. Because guys, how we celebrate dictates how we worship. If you think of the many Christmas Eve services that are all going on around the day, and the different fractions we have in this extremely fractured community we call Christianity, you're going to go into some that have a huge band and lasers flying around. You're going to go to some where the music is so loud you probably couldn't turn to your neighbor and talk. But if we take that same analogy and we just turned off all of that show and all of that craziness, we may find ourselves in a scenario that is more akin to a barn than a palace or an inn. Where we might actually have to have a conversation with someone. Learn about their lives and ask how we can serve them or even just talk. Can you imagine what might happen if we actually entered into something? We might actually deal with each other. 
And this is how God reveals himself in a situation where we actually have to deal with each other. And this is insane because this isn't how God Almighty should work, right? God Almighty should hand us marching orders from on high and go for it, but that's not the way that God reveals himself. He doesn't reveal himself as a king in the political spectrum, and he doesn't reveal himself in the in, in the normalcy of life. He chooses to be on the outside. And get this, the first people who are actually uh, privy to this news, the first people that actually get to see what's going on are these people known as the shepherds. And I'll go on a brief shepherd rant here. There's a much longer one before, but uh, the coolest thing to know about the shepherds is that these were people that uh, were literally living outside. And the reason that they weren't even at the census was likely because shepherds, this position was a job that you would take if you could literally find no other position to work in. And so likely these shepherds were out there because even in the census, they would have had their identities stripped from them. And it wouldn't even matter if they were counted because they may have been criminals before. Or they may have been born into such lowly status that they couldn't get any job. And so basically what it means that they're not at the end, that they're not in the crowded space, that they're not being counted in the census is because literally in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of Rome, they didn't need to be counted. And this is true, the same historian that I mentioned before, this guy Josephus, describes uh, these shepherds and says that because of their, their criminal past or their, um, their shadiness, <laughs> because of this, they were not actually allowed. If you were a shepherd, this is true. If you were a shepherd, you were not actually allowed to bear witness in court. Which means that if there was a lawsuit going on, which was happening all around because of this taxation stuff, there was a lawsuit happening or there was a criminal charge and you were brought to a courting system of some kind and you wanted to call a witness, it could not be a shepherd. Even if a shepherd saw everything that went down, shepherds were not allowed to bear witness in a court of law. And so guys, look at how cool that is when you turn that around. When God shows up, who does he choose to bear witness to the child for the first time? Those that have not been allowed to even speak or be counted before. It's the lowly. It's the weak ones. And that's hard for us to get our mind around because we may be living in something more akin to that crowded in than outside with the shepherds in a place where we're, we're in a place in life where we can actually look up and see the angels singing rather than the Son of Man literally knocking on the door of the inn and turning them away because there's just no space in here. Christmas Eve is a story and it's a call and it's actually asking us to change our minds about people. If people were going to receive the news from these shepherds, they actually might have to dignify these shepherds. They might actually have to look at them as people who could be counted and trusted to believe this new message that this new king has arrived, you would have to change your mind about shepherd. And that is so difficult for us to hear because we live in a society where changing our minds about something just simply does not happen. And changing our minds about someone really doesn't happen. 
We may change our mind on a view, but when's the last time you simply changed your mind about someone? About someone you had a preconceived notion of or someone you have down pat? When's the last time you truly changed your mind about a human being? And this comes down to our cultural unawareness of what forgiveness really looks like. And everything that Jesus came to proclaim revolves around this idea of forgiving someone. And forgiveness is tough. That's why we need this God. (laughs) It's so hard for us to get our head around because forgiveness is this miraculous act of not forgetting what happened. Not forgetting the deeds of someone, but rather like giving them grace and extending forgiveness. It's the miracle of letting go of the pain without forgiving the deed. So what does this have to do with Christmas? The shepherds, again, are people that that are judged on a daily basis. If you were a shepherd, you slept outside with the sheep. Now, I don't want to get too graphic here, but like, the smell that that would <laughs> kind of uh, come about, that, that, would, that would make you, uh, basically you're, you're wearing a cowbell around your neck. But you didn't need the cowbell because people can literally smell you from a mile away. If a shepherd showed up in the room that you were standing in, you would know that a shepherd is here. But God intentionally steps into this story in a way that actually asks people, like, no, if you want to hear this good news, if you want to learn more, about what I'm doing, you actually have to believe this person that you counted out for so, so long. And guys, on this Christmas Eve in 2017, look around. We do a really, really terrible job of actually forgiving people and listening to what they have to say. If you think about how hard it is for a former prison inmate to get a job after they have served their time. Or even more so, we're in a culture right now where if you actually tell the truth about something that you did that was wrong, you actually repent, which is this biblical tradition of turning around, completely changing your life and saying, what I was doing was completely wrong, but I want to shift now and I I want to be on the right track. I want to do good. We have created these cultural systems that make it so that if someone wants to course correct and do good, they're not actually allowed to do that. And so what that creates is a system that if you, if you lie enough and if you keep denying the accusations that are against you, that's the better move. And that's crazy. That is not the story that God comes to proclaim. The story that God comes to proclaim is that you really can change everything, and then after that, we can live this life in a better way. You can have a better life. You don't have to be stuck in all of that craziness that is ruining your life right now. You can be free. My long list of what Christmas is a story of, I'm going to now say Christmas is a story of liberation of freedom. It's just hard for us to clarify what that freedom looks like. 
And if it's hard for us, it must have been even harder for those shepherds to understand that, like, wait, why? Why is he coming to us? And when the angels show up, this is the, the, the really cool contextual part of this. When the angels show up and they sing what's known as the jubilation, glory to God on high, and they proclaim this to the shepherds, they sing a jubilation. And that word is so important. Why do they sing a jubilation? Well, if you're a shepherd and you're on the outside of this society, of this Roman society, you would know the rules you had growing up with. And the rules you had growing up with were this. The Jewish law was brilliant when it came to debt. What you would do is, is you would be able to lend people money. And there's all sorts of verses in the Bible about lending people money. And they encourage you to lend people money. Because what would happen on the seventh year, every seventh year, there was this thing called a jubilee. It's not a jubilation, but a jubilee. And what a jubilee was, was this event every seven year where every single debt was forgiven. So if you were in debt up to your eyeballs and you had no way to get yourself out of this, every seventh year, the Jewish law required that no matter what, you forgive all the debts. And what this would do would create a system that people would not lend out too much because they would realize, like, ooh, like, I could be in trouble on that seventh year. And then people would not have to ask for too much because they would know that, oh, every seventh year, everything's going to be okay. This was a system that they would have known. And if the angels are seeing this jubilation, what does that mean? That means that all of the debt that society has put on you and all the craziness that you're dealing with in your life right now, because of this moment, you are now free. You are now free. And so the angels proclaim, this will be a sign unto you. And they point to the manger. They say, look for this baby in a manger. This is your sign. And we'll end with this idea of signs. Signs, in a biblical sense, are always there to give clarity. We see signs in a couple other places. Uh, we have an instance of signs when we have Moses in the burning bush. The burning bush is a sign. When uh, the flood happens and there's the whole Noah's Ark story, which is in Genesis, there's a rainbow afterwards that basically proclaims God's never going to do this again. And that's a sign. We have all of these signs. And in the Christmas story, we have two unique signs. We have one, which is the manger to the shepherds, and there's this other sign to these magi, which have been translated into wise men. And this sign that they see is a star. And so we have a manger for the lowly and the outside, and then for the magi, we have a star. And what is the significance of this star? See, for us, it's like a, it's a really beautiful picture to see this gorgeous, huge star and to follow it. But we miss the point because we, we don't have any cultural context for this. What, what a star meant in that time was there was a belief that when you were born, you were also born with a star. And the star was your guiding light, sort of like the way that we have um, guardian angels today, or some people believe in that, right? You, when you're born, you have a guardian angel that always looks after you. Well, in this time period, you had a star, because in the ancient Near East, when you needed to get somewhere, or you needed to chart where you were going, you would look up, and you would see the constellations, and you would know where you were because of the stars. And so this was the idea that there is a star out there that guides you. And believe it or not, this is where we get the word disaster. It's dis a star, disaster. Because when we're separated from 
that inner guidance, we find ourselves in disaster. And this is why some of us place a tree or a star at the top of our Christmas tree. Because the, the Christmas tree, a tree in most world religions is a symbol of knowledge because its branches keep going out. It's ever growing and expanding. And it has its roots and it has its trunk and it's just it's it's reaching out into the light. That's the beauty of the Christmas tree. And then on the top of that, some of us place an angel, some of us place a star to say in our lives as we are ever expanding, as we are growing, as we are moving forward, let us not forget what guides us. This Christmas Eve, as we sit in the tension where Mary and Joseph were of just a nightmare experience of having to give birth in some of the worst conditions, May we find profound hope in the fact that the story of Christmas Eve is that even if you find yourself in disaster, disassociated with your star, God is still proud of you. God is still as proud of you in this disaster moment as he is in your best moments, and he's never left. Somewhere out there, he's celebrating, just as he was celebrating with that multitude of angels that he sent to go find the shepherds. God has not stopped celebrating you. And the beauty of Christmas Eve is that every year we can have a course correction and look at this in the rhythms of our year and go like, whoa. Through the great times and through the muck and the craziness, God has never stopped celebrating me. And he's still proud. The question we have to ask ourselves tonight as we get into tomorrow, where it's a celebration. The question is, do we have the space in our lives to look up like the shepherds did above our current situation to see that God is always there celebrating us and we're invited into that celebration? Because I believe too often we're participating in the crowd, in that crowded in, and we're not looking So guys, Merry Christmas. May you enjoy the time with your family. And may we look in expectation for tomorrow where literally the light is going to win.